And there's plenty I'm still like just not interested in. But at this point, anything he makes, yeah, I'm interested well, the, in. Yeah, the Dalai you know. Lama's a freak, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. Suck on my tongue. Yeah. He's going old Phantasma, dude, out there. Yeah. You know? It's the CIA-backed Dalai Lama. Give me a fucking break. <laughs> the Dalai Lama going old Phantasma. <laughs> that is what they need, to get, they need to get Wolf Warrior in there, dude, and just level Tibet, you know? <laughs> Unleash him on him. <laughs> Holy shit. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, I'm the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown him? Then crown your ass. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them on the hunt. That's hot out there. That's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders. I'm one of the hosts of this show. And my other hosts are with me today. As always, we have got... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us has to select a theme for the week, and then the other two have to pick some films that are in reaction to that theme. Whether they address it directly, whether they buck up against it, we are playful, we have a lot of fun, and we've been doing it for a while now. We're getting closer and closer every day to our 100th episode, so I just want our listeners who are listening right now, some of our loyal fans, maybe some first-timers, we have some 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 special stuff coming up, so get excited about that. You know, Get that on your radar, get 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 your plans set where you can set aside probably an hour and a half, two hours to, to listen to that. <laughs> Should be fun. Should be fun. Well, but not that's not what we're at today. This is a episode 98 yep. i believe i i picked the theme this week and i've i've been a busy bee i've got a big event coming up next week we're recording this on 420 hopefully i'll be able to relax uh afterwards presumably with some peter watkins you know we've been marsh and i have been watching razan the journey and as you know nuclear war isn't typically something that relaxes me but and it, well actually in a way i take that back it has been relaxing <laughs> me this year because i, I Razan is very peaceful listening to peter watkins speak i recently read the making of the atomic bomb purposefully to calm myself down to think about something like larger than myself when i was dealing with my own problems at work and that was sort of the genesis of this topic itself not nu- not nuclear war but to uh, calm myself down and um you know, sorry. Um, and to, it's 420, like, folks. It's this guy's off the chain, dude. You following this? So, you know, one of the ways I, I, I was planning on calming myself down was I've got a trip booked. I'm going to head out to Lisbon. I'm going to go see my buddy Nabil, who's a big fan of the podcast. He has a lot of fun seeing some of the double features we come up with. He's a dear, dear friend of mine. I haven't seen him for a few years. I'm just really excited. And I thought, you know, I'm taking a trip at the end of May. I kind of want to take it a little bit earlier. So I figured I'd ask the boys to bring me some films from Lisboa. Let's go to Lisbon. Let me see some films that were shot on the streets of the beautiful city. And that's definitely what they did. And I did feel like I got to go on a wild trip to Lisbon uh, this week watching these films. I am extremely satisfied with the selections. I think there will be a lot of fun stuff to talk about. And I'm interested to hear how both of you even introduced both of these films. I think they're very interesting pieces. So let's just 
dive right into it, Marsh. Your film came out first, so tell us about it. Well, first I need to uh, snitch on myself um, for being a bad cinephile. A couple years ago, the Siskel Center had a retrospective of the films of Swiss filmmaker Hélène Tanner, and I went to none of them. I went to three of them. <laughs> no, that's why I'm bringing it up because we are friends and I remember that and I remember that you saw some of them. So uh, you're going to need to, uh, you know, sort of fill in some gaps uh, for me uh, and speak to, uh, you know, what you've experienced because I have not seen any of his films. But when I was looking for Lisbon films, you know, it first popped into my head, you know, things like uh, The State of Things by Vim Vendors, uh, yeah. you know, the, the Territory by Raul Ruiz, uh, that kind of stuff, Pedro Costa, the classics. But then I was like, I just want to find a new film in Lisbon I haven't seen, you know, and experience for myself a, a new look at the city because it is a very cinematic city uh, in my experience. I've never been there, uh, but I've seen it on the silver screen and it's a, it's a real wonder, especially to a a corn fed uh, American idiot like me. Who's been like nowhere, you know, I'm like, how did they, who built this? You know, I live on the grid, you know? Um, So anyway, I I found my way to, you know, a a film that was basically described as uh, Bruno Gans wanders around Lisbon. And I was like, damn, that's a movie I want to see. That's like, for me, high concept cinema, you know? And so uh, the film is In the White City from 1983, written and directed by Elaine Tener, produced by the great Portuguese producer, Paulo Branco, who I discovered has the most Cannes Film Festival entries of any producer ever, wow. over 50. And he Whoa. produced tons of Dale Oliveira and Ruiz and, and other art house filmmakers uh, in France and Portugal. Uh, a guy that's got uh, a lot of money and good taste, I guess, you know. So uh, if you were wondering who paid for this movie where Bruno Gans wanders around Lisbon, direct your complaints or compliments uh, his way. Uh, the film is about Paul, played by Bruno Gans, who's a a merchant seaman working on this big ship full of machinery. And immediately at the beginning of the film, he, uh, you know, disembarks into the city and never goes back to his his ship. Uh, And essentially, as I think Ryan, you said uh, in a text message, he... uh, discovers uh, unstructured time as he then bums around in Lisbon. And from what I've researched, this film uh, has a very uh, interesting sort of background in the sense that Tener uh, didn't have a script, actually. There's no one credited with writing the film uh, because they didn't have a script. And they mostly improvised this film. And Tener had called it his uh, second first feature uh, because for him it marked a a pretty decisive break from the way he worked in the past. And from what I know about him, he was a very political filmmaker. And at some point in the 70s, he had a heart attack uh, and had some other issues and decided that he was also going to now approach films uh, less 
ideologically and more intuitively. And that, you know, sort of led to this project. And so that's, uh, yeah, you know, again, we'll get into it, but uh, there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on. There's an aspect of eight millimeter filmmaking that Paul does um, as a character that we are also witness to because he's sending these cartridges back to Switzerland to his presumably girlfriend or wife. And so there's that, you know, element of him being, you know, far away from home and his girlfriend. And then also, of course, he's going to fall in love with the Portuguese barmaid played by Teresa Madruga, who is uh, a big Portuguese actress. She's in a bunch of De Oliveira movies. Um, and so he's got, you know, he's got romance going on. He's discovered unstructured time where he just does whatever he wants, you know. Uh, but that, you know, leads in, in, in some interesting directions, shall we say. But uh, it's beautiful, 1661 uh, cinematography. Uh, it's gorgeous. It really just, you know, shows you at least a certain part of the city, certainly by the port, and certainly just those winding, never-ending sort of like labyrinths you know or whatever yeah. you want to call them anyway yeah that's in the in the white city yeah yes yes it is I, when i remember when we did george kuchar's weather diaries and we revealed to andy that the film was edited in camera it was sort of like this big expansive moment where the film changed in your head that's how i feel right now knowing that this film didn't have a script because it seems so obvious and i can't believe i didn't pick up on that or even just notice that when reading about the film but that's fascinating yeah while i just stayed on that andy tell me about your film which i also would say is a film about unstructured time if i'm not getting too far into myself uh so go ahead yes tell us well full disclosure i my first inclination was to kind of troll you a little bit <laughs> with with my pick um and i had serious um seriously considered picking on Her Majesty's Secret Service. That wouldn't have been a troll. Only because, <laughs> only because the movie basically My takes daughter. place, I think, in Switzerland the whole time, but Bond gets married in Lisbon in the movie, which I didn't know until I researched it. Uh, it's and like the I last, was, like, six minutes. Yeah, it's like, exactly. <laughs> and I was just like, ah, it could be kind of a funny, you know, a major bucking up against the topic, which <laughs> yeah. we sometimes like. But, but there was another film on my list that I had been meaning to see that I was very... You know, uh, looking for, I guess, the right moment to watch it because I'd heard that it was a pretty intense uh, experience. Um, and uh, the way I had seen it described at, at a certain point um, that really kind of piqued my interest in it, uh, someone kind of said it's like um, a sort of like um, a Portuguese film. Uh, but, you know, it's sort of like if Rainer Werner Fassbender had directed Catwoman. And that just sort of was like, oh my gosh, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta get my eyes on this thing. So it had been on my list. Um, and the film is from the year 2000. It is called O Fantasma, directed by João Pedro Rodriguez. The film concerns a uh, a Lisbon, I guess, sanitation worker, garbage man by the name of Sergio. And Sergio, uh, while he's not 
sort of prowling the streets on the back of a, a garbage collection vehicle picking up the city's trash, uh, likes to also sort of um, prowl around looking for rough sex wherever he can find it with various people um, up all night on the, the streets of, of Lisbon. Um, and, and this seems to be his, his day-to-day, or I guess night-to-night routine, until, of course, he spies an obscure object of desire in his, um, in his rounds of picking up trash. He, he becomes infatuated, I guess you could say, with, with a certain man, and then... Or a certain bike. Or a certain bike, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> And then things start to get uh, very dark, and uh, it is a a textbook exploration of becoming animal or perhaps becoming trash, becoming garbage, <laughs> as Sergio's uh, unrequited <laughs> desires start to eat him up inside. And yeah, it is a it is a raunchy film. It is filled with a lot of unsimulated sex. Uh, it is gritty. It is grimy. There is actually not a lot of dialogue. It is, I think, also a a masterclass in raw physicality. And the central lead, uh, I believe, his name is Ricardo Menezes or Menezes. I'm probably butchering the the actual Portuguese pronunciation. Who was, uh, from what I understand, basically like discovered by the director for this film. I mean, he really puts on a virtuosic performance as he descends into increasingly carnal, animalistic um, behaviors throughout the film. It's it's a wild ride, and I, I can say, thankfully, it was a it was a brisk ride too, at about 87 minutes. Because boy, oh boy. This is a, uh, a hot one. And, um, you know, knowing what I had sort of known about it, and I know that you're a big Fassbinder fan, when I had seen sort of people describe it as a, as a sort of Fassbinder-esque sort of um, journey, dark night of the soul kind of thing, I, I figured you'd appreciate that and, and perhaps maybe even just give you a, you know, something to like look over your shoulder about when you're over there, you know, at night in, uh, in Lisbon for a... Uh, for men in latex, full-body latex suits, you know, just yeah, climbing on roofs. Yeah, yeah. So that is O Fantasma or the Phantom. <laughs> thank you. Yes, thank you both. I, I really enjoyed both of these movies, and I think it's a great double feature. I mean, the goal of this trip to Lisbon is to find some unstructured time because my life right now is extremely structured around time and the clock. It's funny how much O Phantasma feels like a strange spiritual successor of In the White City with a obviously radically different vibe, but just this person who's wandering through this city is getting lost spiritually in this city, and then if anything, maybe becoming a part of the city in that lost wandering. That's sort of like the big overhead of what both of these movies kind of feel like. But we have two radically different depictions of the city. And the White City is gorgeous. It's colorful. It's lovely. It does seem like a nice place to stroll around. Oh, Phantasma, not so much. Uh, it's you know, it still looks like a kind of a cool city, but it just it doesn't feel like you want to walk around 
these particular streets or alleyways um, at night necessarily. But yeah, I thought it was interesting that both of these films are kind of centered around figures who do find themselves lost in Lisbon and then manage to find things in the process, right? I mean, I guess that's like kind of a typical sort of film about a city type vibe. But yeah, you've got someone who who maybe finds love, maybe finds um, a new sense of freedom in In the White City. And then in Oh Fantasma, you have someone that, yeah, I mean, finds an alter ego, <laughs> finds a bike. You could go on a list of all the things that that is discovered in that journey. Um, but in terms of what I have to look forward to in Lisbon, yeah, I mean, who knows what I'm going to find there. That's the way I felt after watching both of these films. Well, I can tell you what you're going to find because there's one thing that is prominently featured in both films, and that's clotheslines. It's a big clothesline city, if what these <laughs> movies say are true, you know? So... Think about that. But I do, I mean, I'm, I'm right along there with you, uh, with both of you, and especially Andy. I wrote, you know, I got to bring up, uh, Ryan made this movie when he was in college called Garbage Ghoul. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I'm, when, familiar, I'm familiar with Garbage <laughs> Ghoul. I was thinking about Garbage Ghoul a lot. And yeah. when, I was, <laughs> when I was watching, you know, Oh Phantasma, I, I wrote Becoming Garbage Ghoul. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was right there with you. And I thought, like, in another life, Ryan directed this movie in, oh, a, in a sense. Yeah. You know? This is probably one of, one of the rare instances is where while I was watching one of my picks, I was just kind of like smirking, going like, boy, I got him this time. He's going to love this one. Like, I just, I, I kind of like just knew that you were going to love it for a lot of reasons. Partly that as well, because I am familiar with Garbage Ghoul. But, yeah, it's so yeah. funny. I was thinking about Garbage Ghoul and I hadn't thought about it in a while. And for our listeners, the idea of this movie was that there was this woman who, like all of her sexual desires that she couldn't come to terms with were sort of like in this garbage can and when she was taking out the trash like these images were flooding her and she turns into this garbage ghoul and like you know all sorts of goopy silly stuff i was riffing but i remembered thinking while watching oh phantasma when he finds like a speedo or some undies in the garbage these like ripped underwear that he wears yeah, the throughout the shirt. film that's all i could think of was a ah, missed opportunity in garbage ghoul i should have had her find something in the trash that she then wore throughout the rest of the film it was a nice touch. <laughs> I mean, it, it is really insane that these are the same film. Yeah. And I'm not, yeah, it's not an exaggeration because it's even beyond like them getting lost. I think they are both, well, sir, like what I appreciate, both these films are characters who are like escaping work, which I'm just like, yeah. Let's go, you know, like dumpster guy is just constantly blowing off his responsibilities and following his dick like wherever. And then I'm like, <laughs> that's what Bruno Gans is doing, too. Like he gives up on, you know, society or whatever, in a sense. And he's just like, all right, well, I'm just going to sort of walk around and see what happens. Well, what happens? Uh, he's, you know fighting with people he's getting drunk and then he falls in love with the barmaid of course he does you know so he's also just kind of like following his 
sexual instincts, his animal instincts, you know, just kind of like detaching intellectually uh, or even practically from the world. Um, And what struck me is, you know, I thought in the White City was going to be what pretty much what it was, but it gets a lot darker too than I than I guess I thought it would. And again, if you know they're they're like improvising this movie, but um, maybe unstructured time, you know, isn't that great in the end. You right. know, I don't want to jump to the end, but I think <laughs> like it, it mu- both films certainly muddy the waters in terms yeah. of uh, the activities of their characters. Yeah. You know? Well, it is it is true. I mean, like I guess to start on like a yeah a very big theme. These are. These are both portraits of becoming and and to me, like whenever I I like talk about, you know, try to define like becoming, you know, there's a there's a, a line that I once read that that I think applies very much to the journey of, of both of these characters. And obviously they're they're kind of becoming different things. Sure. But you know, one of the the core concepts that I've always held on to is this idea of, you know, to to become more than what we are, we have to become less of what we are, right? And by becoming less of what we are, we become more of what we are. Both of these characters, like, unmake themselves in this journey to to produce something new you know to to produce a version of themselves that is very different uh you know in the case of Ophantasma yes it's 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 a dog perhaps uh, or or it's a pile of garbage uh and and in the case of of you know in the white city it's just like it's it's yeah it's it's almost as if he's trying to become like a a like a spectral figure he's be, he's trying to almost become like he, he's trying to like unmake his own existence in a strange way to to unmake like everything that has you know brought him to this point you know it's it's like the minute he jumps off the ship he's trying to detonate and and explode that person who was just on that ship, right? So so they they are both going down this path of of trying to like lose themselves in this city, in their rounds, mm-hmm. in their day-to-day. And and yes, like what comes out of that, yes, is is of course very, very different and goes in in wildly different directions. But but at the same time, again, I think the spirit is very similar between these two these two figures. Yeah, I did. It is interesting because both films did go in different directions than what my preconceptions were walking into them. As you mentioned, Marsh in the White City does veer into more darkness than I was anticipating. This seemed like it would be sort of floaty and breezy and very literary. You know, a man wandering around the Lisbon. It would have felt very European. Uh, but it does, yeah, it does like traverse into dark territory. And then, oh, Phantasma, I went in thinking like, oh, this is going to be <laughs> this is going to be a piece of work. Like, this is going to be intense. But to be honest, and I'm not trying to diminish the film, I, I think it's very funny. I think mm-hmm. it's a film that has, like, a great sense of humor, and I don't oh, yeah. think it's, like, given credit for that necessarily in what I've read. But I think it's inherently funny that you've got this guy, like, wandering around in the garbage and digging through the garbage, and, like, that's this odyssey that he's going on. I still found the moments that were supposed to be, 
you know, intentionally provocative to be provocative. And I found myself, you know, upset and, and moved at various moments. But I do think it is like a funny film. I was, I was on its wavelength and having a laugh with oh, it. Oh, yeah. I think, again, in, in people who had, you know, for me, entering into the film kind of compared it, um, you know, spiritually to Fassbender, like that's also what I was like connecting to. And we've talked yeah. about Fassbender quite a bit on this this podcast where it's like, I think all of us have agreed that, you know, we feel that there's a, a lot of people who sometimes sort of like miss Fassbender's, you know, very dark sense of humor and, and just sort of like get lost in the, the more melodramatic aspects of it, but don't see perhaps even like the irony in it. And, and I think that's very much the case here. Like, I think that's the sort of spirit of Fassbinder that he's invoking that like, you know, somebody once said, right. It's like in, in a Fassbinder film, like people get to a point where they're like, they're so over the top that like, you can't help but sort of like start giggling or laughing. Like the drama gets like so ridiculous that, that you have to kind of embrace the madness and the madness that is meant to be, yes, like pitch black humor. But also I was, I, I was also of course thinking of like him kind of riffing on like Kenneth Anger a little bit too. And like Kenneth Anger has a really like great sense of humor I find anyway. Right. So like certainly like, at its, I guess you could call it its climax. And I don't want us to like just immediately jump there, but like I was like cracking up at like his big, like kind of like, I guess you'd call it his like butterfly moment. You know, it is just so <laughs> ridiculous. Like, and again, in his like, even like physicality when he really gets there, like it's, it's amazing. Like I was just like, just, just laughing. It was so awesome. Yeah. I think it took me a minute to, to get on like that that humor sort of wavelength but it all clicked for me in the scene when he does hump the suzuki uh <laughs> that's parked outside and it is you know it goes on for quite a while uh and and i thought of anger watching this too the the fetish stuff the gloves the bike you jerking know. off a cop yeah <laughs> the cop stuff you know and and so he's humping this suzuki uh and then all of the sudden this cop is just like right behind him and there's no lines said in the whole scene. And then another cop sort of like slowly enters the frame from off screen. And I was, I lost it. Like to me, that scene was so funny and nothing was said. And just these glances exchanged. Like this dude was like fucking a Suzuki bike. And these <laughs> cops are just like, okay, you know, like, like what? Um, and, and yeah, ultimately I got, I got into it. And, and I guess like I, I was tricked for a while because it's a lot, it's a very, uh, how to describe it? Uh, formally, it's a very intense movie. There's a lot of long takes that also are kind of like limited perspectives, you know? Like we're not yeah. getting a lot of like establishing shots in this movie. Often we're just kind of in like these abstracted spaces, you know? And it's, in that sense, I found it to be a very like claustrophobic um, film formally, like you're kind of like trapped in these uh, these long takes, and they're not flashy long takes like Ellen Tenner in in the White <laughs> City, right. which we can again compare and contrast because it's also a long take ish movie. 
but with lots of kind of yes, stylish European compound dolly moves. Yeah, you know? that's what I was gonna say. Like t- Tanner's camera is like moving a lot. It's it is just it's moving a lot, and there are just like huge tracking shots. But yeah, in in O Fantasma, even when it's just a sort of like shot of a sort of like a wider angle on a street, it still feels suffocating in that same way because we never see the city, you know, in the kind of scope that we get from uh, from in the White City. You know, and I think in part maybe also because like one of these films is made by a a a resident of Lisbon, somebody who's like, you know, this is what real Lisbon looks like, yeah, you know? Yeah. And Tenere is like his his character, like Bruno Gans, like, just like, look at, it's Lisbon, beautiful, you know? Yeah. What, look at the history, <laughs> look at all this stuff. Right. And meanwhile, you know, like, O Fantasma is, is rooted almost entirely in the city's underbelly, and it's trash, specifically. The garbage. Alleys, dude. Yeah, the garbage that this beautiful place produces. It's it's the, the unseen side of the city that certainly tourists don't get. You know, and to that effect, both films have very intense soundscapes that evoke two completely different feelings, right? Yeah. Uh, in uh, O Fantasma, anyone who's seen this film, I'm sure, will be haunted forever by the dogscapes going on in the background. Very much so. In every yeah. scene of the film, there are dogs in the background. Just That's just a rule here. And it is very fucking distressing. And on the other, <laughs> on the other hand, uh, In the White City has like texture and life of this vibrant place and music and people in markets and like the sounds of the ships at port Uh, and they're both as intricately designed as each other but totally like evoking uh yeah completely different kind of (laughs) yeah without a doubt yeah no kidding those dogs oh my god (laughs) this is like all-timer scary dogs barking in the background (laughs) movie (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just like knowing like everybody like on edge all the time because of how pained those dogs are just like yelling at everything they're seeing happening in front of them. And it is it is because he is almost immediately um, presented to us as basically a, a, a human who is more of a stray dog. Right. I mean, the, the, the opening is just so like, Ooh, it's so rough, and I mean, yeah, the very first shot is a dog. It's a it's a Doberman like prowling this like darkened hallway, like yeah. kind of whining and scratching at a door. And then the very next shot we have is a man in a latex suit, a full body latex suit, like fucking another man in a very rough way and the guy's handcuffed and and i think gagged as well i mean it is just like brutal and we're sort of like introduced to our character in this way and then the the only real moment within the the first like section of the film where we see any kind of tenderness that he has or experiences is with a dog, with this this dog named Lord that he seems to just value above any other interaction he has. And there's this great opening 
kind of like sequence where it's just like he he goes in and he unchains the dog and then they just start running through the streets together. They're just already like prowling the streets. I mean, he is this stray and and I think again that that barking that that you guys have described on the on the soundtrack is much to invoke that kind of like barking and howling and 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 pain that's inside of his of his soul in his spirit you know I mean yeah some of the first noises we hear Sergio make are barking he barks he growls he bares his teeth in some of those opening sequences you know and then he sniffs and then he sniffs. Oh yes, there's a lot of sniffing in this movie too. And then, but in the in the White City, we've got a great introduction in terms of sound because we're looking out out at the water. There's this boat way off in the distance. It's very hazy, and then we get that faint sound of the horn come in, and then we hear the the, the real punch of the horn. You know, it's like listen to them horns. We've got like the great sounds that you hear when you're at the port. Then when we get on that boat, it's like a cacophony. It's just machinery. It's so mechanical and brutalizing and and just like, it's like metal. You know, you can hear the steam and you can barely hear Bruno Gans communicating to anyone because of how loud it is. And like, that's the past that he is now trying to give up, or at least his present tense that he's trying to avoid and then slip into totally unstructured time. Because yeah, the rest of the film is quite nice. It, there's music. Speaking of horns, it's that score. Oh yeah. Oh my yeah. oh my. <laughs> oh my god. Oh that smooth jazz. Oh, it was so relaxing. Yeah. But I, I was wanna... thinking like <laughs> the ship's horn, the saxophone. They're like, do you know? They're they're playing off of each other. Yeah, I, I would say they're in sync. I definitely agree. Very, very pleasant music in that film. Andy, you were talking about before about how with O Phantasma, how it reminds you of some of the dark humor in Fassbender that people seem to miss. I, I can't get over this quote I read about O Phantasma. All-time bad take and just willful misreading and like refusing to engage with the film and it showed up on plex when i had the film like loaded and ready to go and i was going to get started and it's it's got the little tomato meter on plex where it shows all the chuds that that review these movies and this is what a.o scott wrote about oh phantasma he wrote (laughs) i can't get over this he wrote imagine if possible a pasolini film without passion or politics or an Almodovar movie without beauty or humor, and you have some idea of the glum, numb experience of watching O Phantasma. Ooh. All-time dumb guy shit. Yeah. Writing a review saying, okay, I've got two reference points for queer filmmakers. I expect some of them to be political. I expect some of them to be funny. Here's a new type of queer cinema that I have no frame of reference for. The yeah. only thing I can do is compare it to these other two guys that I, I, I like, and not because they're gay, but because of these other things they do. You know, it's just all-time stupid shit from the early 2000s. Uh, so A.L. Scott canceled once again, as always, because yeah. I think this movie is funny. <laughs> I think it is full of passion. You know, I'm not going to make like a big political argument necessarily sure. about it. But yeah, I think it's a movie full of beauty and humor and full of passion. I think A.O. Scott is totally off the mark with this one. Yeah, I I mean, he's, <laughs> he's been one. off the mark before, you know. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I, I'm glad that you brought that up, though, because I, I did feel a certain 
tenderness in this as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like, it's easy for people to just see the, the certain shocking. And I, I don't even necessarily want to call it like that shocking. I, I didn't find I anything so in this either, movie yeah. like sh- shocking in the sense where you'd be like, Oh my gosh. You know, I mean, hell, Fucking uh, this is an Emmanuel, Emmanuel in America. America. <laughs> yeah, like, Emmanuel in America. That shocked the hell out of me, you know. But like a movie, strangely, that was like popping into our in, into my head quite often while I was watching this uh, was one we had talked about uh, quite a while ago on the podcast, uh, Jean Eustache's My Little Loves, and I was thinking about like that film and, and certainly like the way we had described it, where it's this sort of like boy that is trying to feel his way uh, intuitively through the world at, you know, a, a very vulnerable time, like puberty, right? As he's just sort of entering puberty. And we had talked about the sort of like violent humanism of the film, the violent naturalism of the film. And in this, I, I kind of feel it's like, it's almost like the inverse but but in a way it's it's very much connected it's it's almost like a like a tender animalism of this film like sergio is also like desperate for connection and trying to like feel his way through the world and we've kind of described it in this kind of you know canine-esque way where he's he's sniffing he's licking he's tasting he's touching and 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 in that like you see his like loneliness and his pain and his desire for something you know of course to a square like a.o scott it's just gonna be all for (laughs) for for like just, I guess, shock value yeah. or whatever. Just more n- new French extremists. <laughs> right, yeah, you know, but it's like, to me, like, man, I I saw somebody that was, like, was, was hurting and struggling, you know? He's not a monster. He's not a villain. He is like the character to me from Ustash's My Little Loves, just somebody yearning, yearning for something that they are unable to define. Yeah, and I think that both of these films try to address that type of feeling through alternate forms of communication that somewhat abandon conventional language. As you said in No Phantasma, there's very little dialogue, and there are full scenes that play out without any words spoken between people, and instead so much is communicated through their actions and through the looks that they're giving each other. There's moments where people become suddenly perfectly in sync, seemingly, that you would really not expect. I mean, you think about one of the standout early sequences when Sergio, his dog, is is barking at a car. He opens the back door of that car, and there is a police officer who is handcuffed and gagged. They stare at each other for quite a while. Sergio starts sucking them off, and it's as though that agreement was made between the two of them when they were staring at each other even though we couldn't even see sergio's face it's a limited perspective it plays out in one shot and conversely in it, well not conversely but similarly in in the white city i felt as though there were correspondences happening across spaces that weren't using conventional language there's this bruno gans has a relationship with a woman in switzerland that it seems, I can't quite tell, it was a little unclear to me if he was ever writing her letters at one point, but eventually their correspondence turns exclusively into him sending her 8 millimeter footage that he's capturing 
in Lisbon. And her understanding of what he's experiencing and feeling and thinking about are coming through this footage that's arriving in her mailbox. Ich hatte einen Traum. Ich träumte, dass ich mein Schiff verlassen hätte, in die Stadt gegangen sei, dass ich dort ein Zimmer gemietet hätte. Ohne wirklich zu wissen, warum. Ich blieb dort und wartete, unbeweglich. Mir träumte, die Stadt sei weiß. Das Zimmer sei weiß, auch dass die Einsamkeit weiß ist, dass die Stille weiß ist. Ich bin müde. Ich würde gerne wieder lernen, über die Dinge zu sprechen. Das Zimmer sei weiß, jedoch dass die Einsamkeit weiß ist dass die Stille weiß ist. Ich bin müde. Ich würde gerne wieder lernen, über die Dinge zu sprechen. Ich denke an dich. Ich liebe dich sehr. And there's almost even, like, hints of a sort of, I almost felt like a, a telepathic connection between the two of them, because yeah. she's sort of, like, he's kind of like, saying or trying to narrate the letters that he may or may not be writing. And he's like speaking them out loud to us. And then she's often were like cutting to her kind of replying directly to what he had just said, whether or not there's a letter it's, it, it was like this, like mm -hmm. this kind of cutting back and forth where it seemed like they were actually having dialogue over again, gosh knows how much time or whatever and certainly yeah. a great distance yeah the the cutting between them is an absolute master class like throughout the film it was always just like the perfect cut to you know mm -hmm. her in switzerland opening the mailbox without a lot of fanfare but just like really effective in their communicating those emotions long distance but you're right at a certain point he does like say or write to her he says uh i have images but i can't write and i think again that is the huge connection is they are both seeking things that they cannot express in words, right? And I think that's crucial to both films. And of course, Sergio uh, takes it more in a dog direction, you know? Uh, <laughs> and then, of course, Paul takes it, at least at first, uh, in this, you know, I mean, he's he's basically sending her, like, Jonas Mikas uh, home, home video diary yeah. footage, you know? And a good portion of In the White City is watching that eight millimeter footage. That's a, a significant element in the film. And, and in the way that it's like rough and bumpy, uh, does have a lot more in common with O Phantasma than the rest of, uh, yeah. In the white city, which is so, uh, so elegant, you know? And I don't want to put you on a spot for a question that you maybe don't have the answer for, but I was wondering while watching 
did Bruno Gans shoot that footage? Did he just like roam around Lisbon to capture that eight millimeter stuff? It, it almost feels like he was trusted with it, but that's uh, inferred from nothing. I don't have the, the actual facts, but I did, uh, I did catch part of an interview with Tenere uh, in 2020. Uh, he died two days before Godard, by the way, and was, and was one year older than him. He was 92, so he just, you know, he fairly recently yeah. passed. Um, he said that when him and Bruno Gans were on set, they said nothing to each other. Because <laughs> he understood that I understood that he understood. <laughs> and that they would only talk at dinner. And that Bruno Gans and him had, like, you know, they'd worked it out in pre-production that when they were filming, again, the film was just sort of made up. And they didn't say a word to each other. So I, there was a lot of trust. So I wow. wouldn't be surprised, you know, if he was handling that that mm-hmm. 8mm footage. Um, but that's what it sort of seemed like, where they were just completely in sync. And he was like, he got it. He was the character. I let him be the character. And then we shot the movie, you know? Like, that, that was our process. Wow. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. I mean, it's interesting now. This is my fourth film of his yeah. yeah, give and, us the straight dope. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if I want to speak like too broadly about it, like to make an assumption because there's still so many films in between the ones I've seen. But you saw Jonah. Yeah, exactly. And that was like a hit. That was like a crossover hit. That was the big one. Is Jonah who will be 25 in the year 2000, which I think is a great film. But it's also yeah, a very political film. It's sort of like. It's kind of like the Big Chill. Uh, I haven't seen the Big Chill, but you know, it's it's all these people <laughs> gathering, uh, all these boomers like hanging out, and in yeah, Jonah who will be twenty five in the year two thousand is is one of those like failures of sixty eight movies. Yeah. Like all these old hippies. Well, now it's like seventy six when that movie comes out, hanging out a farmhouse, talking about what went wrong, how they failed. In reality, it's a lot like Robert Kramer's Milestones, which I saw not too long ago. That is the closest comparison I would make to Jonah. I also saw Mesidor, which is from 79, which I really liked, but I actually don't remember the plot of it at all. But I know it's about, I think it's like kind of a hitchhiking road trip movie between two women. But then the other one I saw is called Light Years Away from 1981, and it fucking sucks. And it is... (laughs) It, it stars Trevor Howard and it's him doing a movie in English. And it is one of those films where it's a, you know, a filmmaker who is native language is in English making a film in English and it's just a fucking misfire one right after the other, you know, and you get the vibe that it's something he probably couldn't have been super satisfied with. I, you know, Dave Kerr in his review of it calls it a preachy static, gaseously mystical muddle, <laughs> which I think is oh, God, really is nice. Ass. Ouch. He liked in the White City, by the way, Kerr. Yes. And I think he likes the Tanner in general. But th- this film is very twee. You know, it just nothing translates. It's British. It's just stuffy. It doesn't work. He's like making a little flying machine. It's goofy. But <laughs> watching in the White City. Uh, after like I remember going to the retro and like when I got to that one I was like all right goodbye <laughs> like I'm not gonna you know carve out some time to see the others which I regret because I did really really enjoy the other two in the white city in a certain sense this is two years after this English language flub 
kind of feels like how we say the film of a free man. He's like, yeah. okay, back to basics. I'm going to get some people I trust. We're just going to work through this and we're going to move through it all with grace and just trust. And we, we're going to shoot it. We're going to improvise. And I think that there was this, uh, I don't know. I can't, I am not looking at the list again. He may have had a film in between these two, but this film feels radically different than that one he made with Trevor Howard in the sense of something that felt overly pre-planned and this one is a filmmaker actually embracing unstructured time in his process. Sure. I mean, it's there's a direct correlation between Tenere's career and Paul and Sergio in that, yeah, he, again, from what I just read in books, uh, he, he talked being like, you know, to stop conceiving of the film from an ideological point of view and then start conceiving of films and images which will become its own discourse, you know? So mm-hmm. total, like, you know, old lefty guy shit of being like, yeah. all right, I need to, like, you know, get out of my, get the 60s out of my brain, you know, and start yeah. over, right? Yeah. Uh, We've talked about that kind of thing before on the podcast. <laughs> I, you know? Yeah, again, like what we were discussing earlier, you know, sometimes you have to to become less of what you are to become more. Than, than what you are and and it's 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 like interesting to hear all of this because this is my first time seeing one of his films but like this context is is very um, it adds a lot now to my experience because both he and Gans then are approaching this from a from a like a very similar um, like perspective of like let's let's unmake ourselves while making this film let's it's almost like work backwards. And that's why it's so important that like when he first arrives at the bar, the first image he sees yes. is a backwards clock where the hands and the numbers are all rotating uh, uh, counterclockwise, right? Uh, backwards and, and forward at the same time. Yeah. And yeah. Rosa denies it, right? She's like, uh, it's the world that's going backwards. Mm-hmm. The clock is right, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that is a beautiful moment. I, they must make watches like that, right? Just like as a laugh. I feel like that's probably a specialty watch you could buy. Obviously not like it's not supposed to be like merch from this movie or something, but I'm sure. I would love a watch that runs backwards like that, but is still telling accurate time. I'm sure they have those because I've almost bought a wall clock that is sold. That is the the Will Graham clock from Hannibal. Yeah, with all the encephalitis. Yeah, when the numbers are all just on one side. They got the Will Graham clock, you know. They they probably got the Bruno Gans backwards time clock. <laughs> Sidebar: Have either of you ever owned like a a fun watch or like a really watch you really cherished and thought was neat? Yeah, I I bought I bought uh, years ago. I bought one of those uh, binary digital watches where you have to do the math. Um, it's oh, it's a really dorky thing, but like you. It, it, there's, there's like uh, describing it is gonna even sound even like dorkier, but like you basically have to like <laughs> do multiplication every time you like look at your watch, and Whoa. there's no numbers, it's just like dots. So wow, did it make you feel more present tense because um, of that? I thought, yeah, I mean, it was like fun because like you know, in a very, again, in a very like nerdy way, you mm-hmm. you sort of like. You look at it, and then you are very present in sort of deducing the time from yeah. the symbols and and stuff like that. So, yeah. A thinking man's watch, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. I had a watch that was a replica of the 
GoldenEye 64 watch. Oh, boy. Bond alert, the main menu. Bond alert. Had to fit one in. Bruno Gans would have been good in a Bond film. It's too bad. I don't think he was ever in one. I also was a really kind of like, yeah, I was a big dork. Like, in, uh, I, I did have a pocket watch phase and, and that, you know. Ooh, me too. Yeah. For like a year, middle yeah. school. Yeah. You know, maybe even elementary school. Yeah. Around the exact same time, you know. There I, you go. I went through that. <laughs> but yes, no, I did love that clock. It's a beautiful moment, I think, that like sets the tone for the rest of the movie. A film that's like moving forward and backwards at the same time. And, and at that then, moment... The camera tracks along the entire bar and changes the entire perspective of the scene space, like while that discussion is wow. happening. Holy you shit. Know? Interesting. Didn't that. Yeah. Didn't That's that. funny. Oh, yeah. I think one of my favorite moments in In the White City is at one of these bars at night when people are hanging out, there's music playing, and Bruno Gans is dancing with some people, and then seemingly at the impetus of nothing grabs some beer and just pours it on a dude's head. <laughs> and then that dude naturally is very pissed off, and they get in like a scuffle and then like crash on the bar room floor, and everyone just accepts it. They're just like, yeah, another night in Lisbon. It's a nice turning point where it feels like he's becoming one with the city because everyone is like chill with such an intense incident like that. Yeah, and again, it speaks to his, you know, it's really, it's like a beautiful entry into like Lisbon, like from when he gets off that like nightmarish mechanical beast that he was, you know, mm-hmm. it was like a big coffin that he was in. And you could see it in like Gans's face as he first like enters the city, just the sort of like wonder, the wide eyed wonder, like, wow, like he's entering into a, a, a almost mythical place for him and possibilities are are limitless and then yes when he sees the clock and has the conversation it's like you see it kind of click in his head kind of like oh hell yeah like let's go i'm gonna live i'm gonna live every moment now with this new logic um but I think even slightly before that, there's like a moment where he's like walking up the steps of, you know, one of these like windy uh, streets and just kind of like there's like a, a stray chicken walking around and he just gives it a little like kick yeah. and, you know, on his way. <laughs> but it's like the same thing with the bar where he's now just kind of giving in to his his impulses, you know, romantic impulses, physical impulses, just that very idea of sort of dancing with some women and then standing next to another guy and being like, you could kind of like see it working through his head of being like, mm-hmm. you know what? I'm going to do this and just see what happens. And it isn't like a violent fight where he's, he's, you know, desperate and fighting tooth and nail. It's just kind of like a scuffle and he gets up laughing from it. You know, he gets the result he was kind of hoping for in that moment, you right. know? And, and, and then, you know, he from from that point on throughout the whole film, it's like he has this kind of like constant smile on his face with everything that he's he's going through, even in the moments of of inner turmoil, I guess you could say, when he's now caught between two lovers. Um, he's enjoying this process, this this unmaking of himself, this first opportunity to truly live, or I guess. To be a, a, an, to feel the liberation of now being an entirely like new person, you know, I think that's what what so much of it is. 
Yeah, it's interesting because it feels like he's taking a vacation from himself, but at the same time, the film is quite clear about the differences between what he's doing and a vacation, because he draws attention to that fact when he mentions that when you're on vacation, you arrange time, you do things, that it's not something that's necessarily improvised. If you're going to head out somewhere you know, and you're going to be there for a limited time, you have an itinerary. Yeah. You put everything together. And that's not his experience. There's no end point to this. They say the boat can't leave without him, and yet it sort of just does. And he's still here. He's still in the Lisbon trying to see, you know, maybe I can find some money to keep this going. But in reality, yeah, there's not the structure to his day-to-day or his time. It's not arranged like a vacation. I often feel that in my own life, you know, that like I'm I'm truly free when I've got nothing to fucking do. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I was definitely feeling that, you know, where it's that mm-hmm. that sometimes that just that pure joy of having absolutely like nothing on the schedule. But like, you know, we are, of course, not Bruno Gans in this film. You know, for us, that's such a fleeting moment. And here he's like. He's he's putting in the work to make this as possible as he can, you know, to just yes. say, like, this is it from now on. Like, this is it. I'm not on vacation. This is not temporary because that's the key to vacation. It's a temporary break, you know, aside yeah. from not having an itinerary for him. He's like, this ain't fucking vacation. This is the new me. I've got no plan to get back on the boat. They left, you know, they're gone, right? Like, I've got what I've got in my wallet. And, and even in the moment when, when suddenly uh, he gets like, you know, uh, mugged in an alley, you know, and he loses everything that he has. I'm like expecting this really dramatic turn. But like, again, he embraces it like it was like just another Tuesday evening or something like yeah. that. I mean, the the barmaid that he's with is like, you're fucked. You've got nothing. Like, aren't you worried? And he's like, nah, buy me a sandwich. <laughs> we'll so we'll we'll take it one step at a time here, you know. I tried. Oh, doesn't he? He tries to steal some fruit and he gets like caught red-handed, yeah. like right away. And then he tells her, like, tried to steal, steal some fruit, didn't work out. Buy me a sandwich. Let's go. And then he says, "That solved. Now what? Right? I mean, it's like everything for him is is to be as 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 present oriented as possible. No past, no future. Though I guess that is the biggest difference between. Bruno in this film and our our lead in Oh Phantasma uh, Fanta- fan- Fantasma <laughs> our lead in Oh Phantasma this guy is driven he is looking to fuck he <laughs> he's also looking for much more than that though oh yes yes much more but he is one of the horniest people I've ever seen in a film well it really again kicks into it it really kicks in when he when he spies that man and his Kawasaki as Mush described you know it's the it's the man and the motorcycle and that becomes his real like obsessive point because he does have like trysts and liaisons and hookups that are throughout the film seemingly like random and as impulsive as as Bruno Gantz. But when he discovers this guy, and I don't even think he's ever named, right? No. He's just he's just this man and his motorcycle. That's when things start to become, as you're describing it, like much more methodical. Like he'll mm-hmm. have his kind of side pieces, but really his obscure object of desire is 
this guy and it slowly builds and escalates. I think, you know, the first thing he discovers in, in the trash, because that's one of his methods is he starts stalking the guy's garbage and doesn't he find the gauntlets? Isn't it like the first piece of the puzzle that he gets? Right. Yeah. (laughs) He, he gets his like discarded old, motorcycle gauntlets and now he's he's wearing those and the speedo you described well yes that also belongs to this guy which then leads him to 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 understand oh he's a swimmer maybe i should go check out the local natatorium the swimming the swimming pool and discovers him there and it's slowly getting more and more intense and invasive uh and and yes like this guy he's very very driven with um and it becomes increasingly tense as the film builds on he pisses on his bed that's one of my favorite moments <laughs> Dude, yeah. that was really funny again like the dog, a dog right marking yeah. his territory he's yeah. marking his territory and then he just fucking jumps out the window you know <laughs> i i kept thinking as i was watching this movie i kept being like oh you know like like i said somebody was like oh it's like fassbender's catwoman and i was like it's kind of like fantomas too a yeah. little bit you know 100%. he's going in and out of windows and and creeping Dude, well and it goes in. there you know not to get ahead of ourselves but like in the climax, it goes to me into explicit uh, Irmavep, Fantomas, you know, cat oh, yeah. suit oh, yeah. on the roof territory, mm-hmm. of course. That's why I keep tripping over my tongue when I try to say the damn title of this movie, because I want to say Fantomas, yeah. but it's Fantasma. Yeah. But yes, that it has to be a literal reference. Of course. Yes. Yeah, you don't just put someone in a leather outfit like that without knowing the historical yeah. uh, connection. Yes, or the, calling yeah. your movie Phantasma, yes. for that matter. Exactly. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is like this is like a fouillade serial, but like you know, production designed by by Maple Thorpe. Really, that's <laughs> what it is. You know, hundred percent, dude. Well, yeah, I want to I want to uh, bring up, you know, what I think. You know, the film at least tells us uh, Paul and in, in the White City. Although he's not driven, he is sort of seeking an ideal, which is brought up in uh, the salamander's larva from Mexico that his uh, wife and girlfriend in Switzerland looks up in the dictionary and then sends back to him a a description of this creature who uh, is then, you know, sort of compared to Paul, right? And she says... uh, what or what the dictionary it says uh, what fascinated me was their stillness their secret will to abolish space and time with an indifferent quietness spying on something some remote extinguished realm a time of an aloof and absolute freedom you know uh, so he's becoming a salamander's larva while Sergio is you know becoming canine right sure uh, but but the the <laughs> The definition like applies to both of them because Sergio is is like reaching and yearning for a much more like primal time in in human interaction yes. of 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 like you know a time before romance per se even right just a time of bodies and heat and and fluids right and smells and scents and tastes Oof. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's specifically um, an oxalotl, right? Yeah. yeah I mean, that's yeah. what he's talking about. You ever see one of those in person? No. Oh, they got one at the um, 
the Garfield one. Park. They got one. Oh, at the observatory? Yeah, the Garfield Park Observatory. It's really nice. They're goofy looking guys. Those axolotls. Man, I you know, it didn't even fucking occur to me to look it up, like and look at what it it looks like because in the description of the thing, I was just kind of like, this sounds like some like made up thing or whatever, some mythic thing, you know. But like, damn, it's it's an actual creature in Garfield Park. Dude. In Gar, dude, we can go check in it out. In Garfield Park, yeah, it is one of those animals that when you look at it and see pictures, you think it's like fake. It it looks like a fantasy creature. It almost feels like they're permanently albino or like translucent. They're wild, wild God looking damn, things. Dude. Well, you know, I think another then connection is as Paul, you know, continues on this path, he's been mugged, he has nothing, he's sort of turning into a turning into a bum or a Pasolini character of some kind, you know. Uh, he then just really starts, like, drinking 24-7. Uh, and that, yeah, doesn't really seem good or, like, a good use of unstructured time, right? Uh, you know, he talks about just sort of, like, everything uh, decomposing, you know? Mm-hmm. Dude, I, I, I think I, I thought I wrote it down in my notes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he, he basically says, like, you know, he's, like, ruminating again, I think, in one of these, like, made-up letters or telepathic communications. And he says something along the lines of, like, time has decomposed for me. I drink in the mornings. But also afternoon and night. <laughs> you know? like, he's kind of like, he's lost track of time. And, and again, an, another connection between the two, like because Sergio's journey is so nocturnal and because it's, it's lacking in, like we've said, establishing shots or, or clear delineations of like the passage of time, like time is decomposed in that film as well. I mean, is this taking place over weeks or is this like four nights, right? Or is just one long ass weekend? Like it's, it's hard to say like his journey isn't broken up. His journey just seems continuous. I mean, it almost feels like this has just been one long night or a thousand nights. And I think both films capture that spirit again so well as we've been describing that that on that becoming unstuck in time, right? Like uh like Billy in Slaughterhouse Five. It's yeah, just sure. It's just <laughs> waking up and, and looking out the window and sort of figuring trying to then figure out where you are or when you are. There were even a couple moments in O Phantasma where he woke up and I was like Oh, it was a dream, you know, but like, obviously it's never a dream. Uh, or is it, you know, uh, the song, the soul song that plays at the beginning and end of the film, which has English lyrics is like dream or whatever, you know? So like for a movie that's so like broody and moody, it does have this like, yeah, this book ended sort of like dreamy soul, soul sort of vibe to it. So uh, I think both films have that dreamy quality where time is, yeah, this very slippery thing. Uh, and we have like, after a certain while, no conception of it really at all yeah i mean for both of the films my notes just get more and more cryptic as they go on now that i'm revisiting it my favorite for in the white city i just wrote sex malaise evenings <laughs> you know because that's like what the film feels like by the end european cinema yeah. <laughs> and then oh phantasma one of my late notes is just 
garbage juice, which is what I was thinking about <laughs> when you mentioned that that it's like, oh, lots of drinking in, uh, in the White City. It's like, yeah, well, that's yeah. got me thinking about when he's just like literally Drinks drinking garbage, garbage juice. juice. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're both so self-destructive as well as part of like where their intuitions lead. There's this self-destructive impulse. And certainly Sergio's is a little more esoteric, esoteric than Paul's <laughs> uh, because, yeah, ultimately it has him sort of like, you know, in the cat suit, wandering the, the garbage scape and becoming like a part of it oh my god you know and he yeah. drinks the goddamn juice it's fucking insane all-time moment when he hugs the the you know the fire barrel in the middle of this just like wasteland yeah yeah it's like the most beautiful thing i've ever seen you know? it is it really is yeah <laughs> it's it is it is like oddly oddly gorgeous you know but yeah, I mean, he 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 goes completely feral. That's ultimately like what it leads to. He just he really does become a wild dog, and 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 yeah, he's he's eating garbage. He's drinking the fetid water at the fucking dump. He's he's huddling for warmth. He's he's shitting uh, wherever I guess he can. I mean, it, it, <laughs> yeah, he's 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 gone completely completely into that animal state by the end. Ryan, have you seen The Ornithologist? Did you see that? Okay. Mm -mm. That I like I knew Rodriguez, I guess from that. That was from like twenty sixteen that got like a lot of whatever, a lot of buzz or or whatever. You know, it's a movie I've heard of. Yeah. Um, Same. And I know it's like some sort of you know, gay cruising bird thing or whatever, you know. So well, something I discovered and <laughs> right? I, yeah, I don't that's know. that's it. And you and, don't know about you don't know the ornithologist. No, yeah. <laughs> something that I discovered about him, I, I was like really trying to find like interviews with him and I, I wasn't really able to find a lot in, in in English, but something that I did discover about him, which made total sense um, again, when you look at this, and I haven't seen Ornithologist, but from what I understand, it's subject matter. Uh, Rodriguez, before he was a film student, his original studies, his original like college level studies were in biology and specifically like animal biology. So like, again, if you think about this film, like so much of it is is kind of interested in like bodies how bodies function uh how human bodies function how animal bodies function and and again in this way that is is very almost like clinical because that's the Mm -hmm. thing like his journey to like become this 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 creature you know when i think in my cryptic notes mine got cryptic as well i just <laughs> yeah. suddenly wrote like i just suddenly wrote gimp time like when yeah. when he gets when he gets like yeah. all the pieces assembled and then he's, he's just gloves, he's yeah got the suit with the ass slit yeah know, dude like. i mean the the boots the combat boots and then when he's kind of like hunched over and he just starts stomping around everywhere it's <laughs> yeah. like gimp time let's go dude but it's yeah, like that shit rocks. <laughs> to get there it is this this oddly like like it's like a study this movie is like a study of how you could get to to this point and it's it's yeah. like scientific in its approach to fetish to kink to 
uh, again, be, becoming animal, becoming garbage. You know what Alain Tenere did before he was a filmmaker, of course? He was a merchant seaman. Well. So In the White mm. City has a you know explicit autobiographical connection. Yeah, he studied like economics and then became a merchant seaman and then got into a free cinema British documentary working uh, in England and then went back to Switzerland and uh, became a legend, unlike the traitor Godard, who became French, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny how both of these movies kind of come full circle where thinking about just, you know, the merchant seaman when Bruno Gans is on the boat, it's really loud and there's all the machinery. As a double feature, when I watched that one first, it was interesting how O Phantasma, when he does like go to the dump, he does end up in a in a, like a factory setting surrounded by really loud machinery and and the film gets really violent sonically when he's surrounded by all of that. And I was like, oh no, unstructured time, it's gone. But then that is when he does go gimp, gimp mode and everything like transitions away. He's like, no, it's permanently unstructured. Like I'm no longer human. He was just <laughs> resting in the, in the machines. Yeah, among, right. He was resting among the machines. Well, you know, again, it's, it's, it's very Deleuzian in that sense, you know, like machines, like the body is just a, a bunch of machines, you know, machines that shit, machines that piss, machines that, that process liquids, machines that, you know, regulate our body temperature like the the machinery that uh bruno gantz's character i keep calling it what's his na- character's name again i paul. paul yeah it's like a guy i would never call bruno gantz paul i you know? yeah i know <laughs> i mean because like this is just a, also a, a brilliant showcase for just goddamn bruno gantz you know and, yeah. and knowing again mm-hmm. that it's improvised like I, I kept thinking as I was watching this, I'm just watching Bruno Gantz. Yeah. I'm just watching Bruno Gantz, yes, go through whatever he wants to go through. But again, he's also like maintaining the machines of the ship, right? It's it's all about machines. And even like the the, the garbage trucks, right? Yeah. The images the of the garbage trucks. The depot too is loud as fuck anyway. Yeah, but I kept thinking about the garbage trucks because he's like really focusing on the garbage trucks. And I was like, oh, that's us. That's what we are. We just we just plod around, just consuming, filling ourselves up, and then eventually we just open our rear end and just dump all the trash out somewhere. Right? <laughs> like it's a very sure. similar process. I mean, like the in a in a Freudian way, like the 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 back of the garbage trucks is very much you know. I couldn't help but find a certain like anal fixation going on there with sure. with like watching them just suddenly like empty themselves out in the same way that he would like unzip the back of the the, the gimp suit you know yeah and crucially when he's going like full fantomas and he jumps in the back of a garbage truck and it's total like diabolique bond moment you yeah. know like, yeah because it's That's also true. it's like it's like in that moment too he's like this is where i belong yeah right Oh, hell well, yeah. there's something interesting about that, I was thinking, where they both sort of reject their occupation and their day-to-day labor because it's not in line with what they're looking for and what they believe in. But at the same time, both films, 
in various degrees, they do return to like the purity of what they were potentially even seeking when they took up these jobs. Because Paul in In the White City mentions when he's talking about the sea and why he likes to be on a boat, he talks about the infinite sea, never knowing what day it is or what time it is. And it's something that could drive you crazy, but it's also something that he feels at home and it kind of reminds me of the captain uh, in Pacifiction. I only feel at home in the sea. And then at the end of uh, O Phantasma, right? You know, he's he's abandoning his gig, but he's only finding that security and peace when he returns to the dump and he becomes one with the dump and it becomes his landscape. Look, I will say this. I, I was like reading reviews. I, I wanted to see generally because this is a movie that, yeah, if you just immediately kind of look at, at you know, a tomato meter or whatever, people are like, this movie's <laughs> horrible, you know? But like, so I wanted to read like good and, and bad reviews and just get a sense of how people are reacting to it. But I will say I came across somebody, I think on Letterboxd maybe even, who who did point out though, you know, if you actually look at the film, he, he does do a pretty, he's pretty good at his job. That's kind of the one area that like, like when he's sure. on the clock, you know, he is doing pretty good. It's always after hours when he really starts getting up to no good and, and fucking around. But, but you know, he went up and down those streets. He laid the garbage cans where they were supposed to be. You know, it seems like, you know, he's showing yeah. up. Is it a crime to fuck the garbage? I mean, Jesus. <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah, it's just sitting there, you know? Yeah, if you can't fuck away. the garbage, what can you fuck? My God. Yeah, what, what are the perks of this job? I will say one perk. <laughs> One perk, I, I know you both had to think this too. I was like, I kept going like, oh, when like his his female friend Fatima, when they're all getting their jobs, and they're like, oh, you're on the motorbike. And that's like a bad translation because she gets to cruise yeah. around in that like three-wheeled little like. Oh, yeah, like the trike. Oh, yeah, so the sick. trike. Yeah. And they're even like, they're like just like screwing around and like he's hanging off the back of the truck and, and she's like, you know, oh, man, that just looks so much fun, you know? Like yeah, that, that's that, that, what Mo Molly said while watching. She's like, why hasn't the U.S. like adopted these like trikes? I feel like in so many countries, it's just a standard. Like you'll see them everywhere, even yeah. in the cities or just using for like specific jobs. And they're just clearly so fun. I mean, the closest thing we have is a golf cart, but it's still it's just not the same. Not the same as that. No, they were just like doing big like circles at one point. Yeah. Like, oh, man. To hang off the back of one of those, too. So fun. I do like that really like the, you know, the darkest part of Paul's madness and in, in the White City is when he gets wrapped up in a soccer game, you know? Oh, uh, yeah, that's man. A, that's a really good extended <laughs> scene where he then like carries it over into a gambling a gambling parlor and is like, hey, you guys hear about the soccer game? Yeah. And they're all like, fuck you, yeah. dude. <laughs> Zico plays like a champion, like crickets. No one yeah. His real low was when he was just like pestering guys about Dude, I swear to God, I feel like that is the moment when he's like, all right, it's over. Yeah. Like, like this, I'm, I'm, I've, I've struck out now with everybody, you know? I, I got desperate. I tried to talk to some guys about soccer and they, they gave me the cold shoulder. Like, maybe I should get back to my job. My girl in Switzerland. Yep. And ultimately, yes, he sells his 8 millimeter camera uh, to you know, one of the bartenders as a gesture of goodwill, and so he can get train fare. Although, really, uh, an unresolved ending, as we certainly don't see him go all the way to Switzerland, but we do see him on the train where he is now making eyes at another young woman, and then we see her in eight millimeter vision 
but he no longer has his camera. Mm -hmm. What does it mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe he was hiding another camera. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) We also didn't, we also forgot to mention the fact that like part of his impetus for leaving is that he gets fucking stabbed in the chest. Yes. (laughs) That's the ongoing, uh, the pool hall gangster saga. Yeah. 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 Another thing to watch out for when you're in Lisbon, right? Yeah, I'll keep there that in mind. There are these pool hall hustlers who are going to uh, pick your pocket and yeah. stab you, so and, be yeah. careful. And, and nothing in your pocket is worth getting stuck in the chest by a Portuguese man. No, definitely not. Yeah, I'm not the kind of guy that keeps the wallet in the back pocket. That's something I could like never wrap my head around. And yeah, I mean, that's that was Bruno Gans undoing there. That thing was really sticking out of his ass. Very yeah, easy. Big to ass just wall. Grab that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but yeah, I guess what did we learn? You know, what do I need to think about? When going to Portugal, you know, it's like be mindful of the trash collectors, you know, mm-hmm. um, Maybe find some time to play dominoes with some old guys in a yeah. bar. Oh, yeah. Um, Watch out for handcuffed cops in the backs uh, of uh, sedans. Yeah. Yes. Uh, do go to the fish market. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Some of that, like, outdoor barbecue fish, that looks incredible. Yeah. Uh, that's something I will partake in for sure. Portugal is I believe like renowned as well for their uh, their sardines. They have like the best sardines or not sardines and cho- no yeah sardines best sardines just, in the world. Like, yeah, just canned fish in general. There's a specific spot. There's a store that I found. It's gonna be a surprise for Molly. She probably won't listen to this episode before before we go. Uh, there is like a, a place that is like the entire store, the entire space is just canned fish, like shelves upon shelves of canned fish. And that's the, I know it's going to tickle her. She's going to love that. But yeah, I am very much looking forward to the canned fish. We actually just had some for, we made like toast for dinner the other night with some, uh, Portuguese canned sardines. Oh, dude, I love, this guy. I love sardines, man. I have not, They're great. I have not had Portuguese sardines yet though. I've watched a YouTube video on them and I've, I'm just dying to try them. Yeah. I mean, these were like sardines that she probably got at Trader Joe's that said like, Oh, these are from Portugal. You know, so it's like not quite the same, yeah. but yeah, I'm very excited to try them. Well, uh, these were our Lisbon stories. Ryan, do you have, uh, some that come to mind for, yeah, for I you? Mean, there are, there are, yeah. I, it was interesting looking through what was shot there when I was trying to anticipate what potentially either of you might pick. And it was interesting. I, I hadn't expected either of these. Um, I mean, I guess there was a part of me that it was like, oh, who knows, maybe in the White City, just because I knew that that was like wandering around Lisbon. It That's seemed right. ready-made for the topic. Uh, but Ophantasma was not on my radar. So that was that was a very fun surprise and, and something to experience. I'll, I'll never forget it. Uh, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I guess when I was thinking about it and seeing, so there's, there's an obvious one, one I knew that was shot in Lisbon and another one I had forgotten was shot in Lisbon. So of course the obvious mysteries of Lisbon, you can't hey. go wrong. Just as what a treat, right? And I, I, a lot of that is shot in the surrounding area, not necessarily in the city. It's a period piece. It's more like estates. Produced by Paolo Branco. Hey, 
there you go. But you know me, we listeners of the podcast know we like long movies. I love the long four plus hour cut of of Mysteries of Lisbon. And we should get on the record too, talk about, you know, we all like long movies. What's this bullshit with Killers of the Flower Moon all of a sudden like not being four hours long? It's like three and a half. Give me a break. I'm very mm. disappointed. I was excited about that. But um, <laughs> the the other one that comes to mind that I had totally, I just was unaware that it was shot in Lisbon. Um, maybe I was while I was watching it, but is uh, Samuel Fuller's Street of yeah. No Return with Keith Carradine, uh, a rock star that has his vocal cords severed. And I, I honestly can't even really remember like the rest Bill of Duke it. Bill Duke is the chief of police or whatever. Yeah. One of the strangest late films of all time. And we are a, you know, we're a big Keith Carradine household. That was one of the reasons we had popped it on. But I do remember the city in that film. And like, yes, that is Lisbon. That is very much a location-forward film. So if people want a a strange odyssey to Lisbon, check out the late Sam Fuller picture, Street of No Return. You know, I got to bring this up um, um, since you mentioned Mysteries of Lisbon. And Mm -hmm. I I love that movie as well. And I know Marsh loves that movie. And I don't don't know if you might remember this, Marsh. You, You... you probably do, but Ryan, you, you've probably not never heard the story, but when we were <laughs> shooting orders, there was one of our first shoots. Um, there was a scene that, that I had, you know, Marsh and I were like talking about the scene, how we wanted to do it. And I was just like, have you seen mysteries of Lisbon? Remember how he moves the camera and, and you know, he does these crazy camera moves where the camera's almost like swinging like a pendulum pendulum. And then also like panning. Do you remember the day where we tried to recreate it with like our skeleton ass crew of like four guys. And we probably spent like no shit, three hours trying to nail those like Ruiz-esque camera moves. And yeah. it, it nearly sank the entire film on like day two. <laughs> and I don't think any of the footage was usable. I think we went back to the drawing bar and we were just like, let's just keep the camera still for this one. Yeah. You, know? you remember that? Absolutely. We, we, were like, yeah. we were practically all like screaming at each other, trying to get it right. Like, oh. Yeah. I so, mean, that's beautiful sh- ambition though. Like if you're going to shoot for anything, like shoot for the stars with a Ruiz camera movement, my God. Yeah. Which I only bring up to, to really stress like how amazing that work he does really is because you, oh. you cannot easily replicate it at all. So yeah, hopefully I, I'll try and, you know, it's, I don't know if we'll be able to get one in, in this amount of time, but I'm hoping I can get an eight millimeter camera, bring it to Lisbon yes. and, send and recreate some rapidly. of this. Yeah. yeah, I'll send it to you like, uh, like just developed. And, Give and, us your and, Kuchar and, diaries, <laughs> dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Lots of fun. Uh, very excited. And it was a nice reprieve from the stress of my day-to-day life. And yeah, so I, yeah, I'm busy next week. I'm not going to be here. And uh, we got a guest coming in, and it is Marsh's topic. Yes. So um, what, what am I going to be missing? I, I'll have the joy of listening to it later, but tell me, yeah, what do, I, uh, what do I have to look forward to missing next week? Well, when the kids are away, uh, the adults will play. And next week, we've got... Filmmaker Ryland Walker Knight coming in to fill in in Ryan's spot in the rotation. And so I was thinking, 
you know, what's a good topic we could do for a couple, you know, a couple guys approaching 40, you know, while Ryan's away. Uh, and it hit me, you know, uh, it's the 99th episode. And just like Andy did for our 1969-69 episode, uh, I'm bringing that action back here. So the topic for next week is party like it's 1999. Oh, yeah. No, certainly I would be missing that. Uh, Very good year. Lots of fun. Endless poetic potential for partying in 1999. I'm excited to see what happens. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Es war ihre Ruhe, die bewirkte, dass ich mich fasziniert vorbeugte, als ich im Axelotto das erste Mal sah. Dunkel war mir, als verstünde ich ihren geheimen Willen. Den Raum und die Zeit durch gleichgültige Unbeweglichkeit aufzugeben. Sie spähten nach etwas aus, nach einer weit zurückliegenden, zu Mitte gewordenen Herrschaft, einer Zeit der Freiheit, in der die Welt den Axolotl gehört hat. 